Hello. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode two of season two of your favorite pot. Well, probably not, but one of your favorite podcasts, Too Lazy to Read the Paper. Our guest today is Rosemary Brown. She's an associate professor at Northwestern University in the Department of Molecular Biosciences. She is originally a physicist, and we share a mentor, a guy called Andy Jackson from the Nils Bohr Institute, or that's where he is now. Um, but nowadays, Rosemary wor- works at the interface between mathematics, statistics, physics, and biology. And in this space, she develops and applies powerful computational methods to investigate living systems at many scales from the atomic level all the way up to the population level. She works closely with experimentalists, and she focuses on, and this is another interest that we share, circadian regulation. She studies cancer and development. And the paper that we're going to be talk about, talking about today has a great name. I'm going to do my best not to butcher it. We just call it informally the time signature paper, but the true name of the paper is Universal Method for Robust Detection of Circadian State from Gene Expression. That's right. I just said it, and I didn't mess it up, at least not a lot. So anyway, that's it. I just keep on babbling. I can't help it. I'm sorry, everyone. Let's get to the show. Let's go, 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 go. Yes. You have this button here that you can control the sound, <laughs> sound <laughs> of yourself in your headphones. Ah, okay. Um, yeah. So that's it. So I, I, I have studied this machine. <laughs> <laughs> How long ago did you get it? Well, I got it a while ago, um, but uh, then I needed guests. And uh, as you know, uh, there's been a, a dearth of uh, traveling. That's true. So, so uh, you, you're the first one brave enough <laughs> 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 to leave. To leave uh, yeah, so, so my idea was that normally uh, we have guests in the real world, and I was so tired of being on Zoom. So basically, right. I just bought a huge uh, podcasting machine. Not bad. And also, it, it's, uh, you know, like commitment is important. So it's also a way, <laughs> <laughs> it's also a way to make sure that I keep podcasting because I think it is important and I think it's fun. But you like all these things that you enjoy can very easily disappear in the kind of grind of keeping up with stuff. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so, so it's here as a very physical and expensive reminder that you should be podcasting. Exactly. And I bought it for grant money, so I have to... <laughs> oh, so now you're truly obligated. I really have to use it to do uh, excellent science communication. So, so uh, that's what we'll be doing. All right. But so thank you for coming. Let's, thank you for having me. Let's introduce you. Okay. And in a way, this podcast is... It's called Too Lazy to Read the Paper, but... Actually, what it should be called is Suna has an excuse to snoop into the past and <laughs> career trajectory of uh, of people. So we'll get we'll, so, so I'm not going to do an introduction. Well, I'm going to record a little introduction, mm-hmm. but just but but what I want is really take some time and delve into this. Where do you come from? Why are you motivated to do what you do? All those questions because I think that they're interesting, and I think that they're interesting. Also to young researchers and also to hear about the path. Like mm. How does one go from being someone who likes science or is good at science and then to being 
a more senior person who, like you, has a job at a cool university and is doing all kinds of things. So how does that happen? So I want to get into that before we get into the paper, if that's okay. Yeah, of course. Very cool. So let's just start with that. So, okay. so how, like, how did you become... So, so, so well, we should maybe set it up to say that you're doing kind of bio, but from a complexity science standpoint, and you're able to do that because you have a background in physics or, and, and so, so there's kind of a red uh, thread connecting all these many cool and very different things that you do. So let's try and sort of say, so how did you end up studying physics, I guess, is my first question. Um, I, you know, how did I end up? I don't know. The, the way any young person chooses a major in college, right? You're good at something. It seems like fun. Um, I was good at maths and science in school, and and the most mathematical science that I could find, of course, was physics. And so that was what drew me into it in the first place. Um, and what kept me there, because... I mean, everybody knows Wigner's paper about the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics. And, and it, the only place that that it's really been unreasonably effective has been in physics. Yes. And so that was sort of what, what drew me in in the first place. Um, and, and still, I, I would say that there are lessons from that that still animate my career today, even though... I think true physicists would not classify what I'm doing today as physics, <laughs> but um, so I've drifted a bit. But um, but those ideas are still very powerful motivators. Yes, let uh, so I'm not sure everyone knows that paper. So I know the paper. I'm a big fan, but maybe you should explain it because I think it's it's really interesting and it's interesting also to today because of the models of today and the effectiveness of deep learning methods for other things. So yeah. maybe just. Like uh, expand on that a little bit because I think it's important or it's a it's a cool thing. Yeah, I mean that paper now. I think I, I want to say that that he published it in in 1961 or so, um, and and basically he talks about how useful and and predictive and insightful mathematical descriptions of natural systems have been, um, and. And he opens the paper actually with a joke um, about uh, a friend talking to another friend who is a statistician, and and the statistician shows his friend uh, the the functional form of the Gaussian distribution, and the friend says, "What's that?" And the statistician says, "Well, that's pi." And the friend says, "What's pi?" And he says, "Well, it's the ratio." of the circumference of circle to, to its diameter. And the friend says, no, 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 now you're surely pushing the joke too far. There's no way that the geometry of a circle has anything to do with the population. Um, and, and Wigner says that when he had heard this joke, he recognized a certain, he puts it as an eerie feeling um, about the connections, these very deep connections between mathematical structures and what we observe in the world. And so the whole paper is about those very deep connections between mathematics, which is in, in some sense a very human pursuit, and, and then what we're able to measure. Um, and he kind of concludes the paper by saying that, you know, this unreasonable effectiveness is, is not really a gift we deserve. Um, but it's so powerful to see those deep connections. And those deep connections, I think, 
are the most obvious or have historically been the most obvious in physics. Um, and they become less obvious in, in other fields because there's much greater additional complexity as you go up in scales and, and, and you know, biological systems, the systems I'm interested in are all out of equilibrium. There's, there's complexity there that is very challenging to model mathematically. And so the connections between the math and, and the measurements are not as obvious, but the idea that we would be able to make them as clear and compelling as they are in physics, that's, that's my dream. Yes, no, no, I, I share that dream also in my work. And I, I look at systems of, you know, uh, people and human beings, and they're even more unruly than many biological systems yeah. in a way, because we also think about and contemplate our own behavior. And, and I should say that this is Eugene Wigner, who is one of the fathers of uh, quantum mechanics. And, and part of why he was so interested, I think, in this unreasonable effectiveness of math is because quantum mechanics really kind of needed a lot of math that had just been developed for the sake of math just a few years previous, or yeah. some of it older, but like the Hilbert's work essentially was foundational in mathematics, and he developed this notion of Hilbert spaces that essentially is what you need for quantum mechanics. Right, yeah. Um, and, and similarly, uh, Heisenberg really needed linear algebra yeah. and and all of us who think linear algebra <laughs> is the best thing ever uh, <laughs> will be surprised to learn that at the time of heisenberg that was kind of an obscure field that no one was like right. everyone thought yeah. like wh why do we even need linear algebra yeah and and yeah. um and it turned out to be pretty useful so yeah. so it's about this magic that all of that math that you needed for the physics had just been developed right and now we're in this weird world where yeah, like the math doesn't fit the stuff we need to discuss. Which means we need new math. Yeah, I mean, I. So this is a massive digression, and I hope it's we're st we're going <laughs> to get back to you. <laughs> but it's hard to stay away from the science because I think also we need the right variables. Like to me, yeah. like a part of it, like I have been saying this again and again, but I think that the genius of Newton, in a way, was you know, like just as an example, was to see that in the richness of nature, and I'm looking out the window at a tree right now and seeing the sunshine in, and there's there's a lot going on, but nevertheless, he saw, well, what I need to describe, a huge swath of everything that goes on is mass and acceleration. Yeah. And those are the two parameters. And I think that when we describe biological systems and social systems, it's not quite clear that we found the right variables yet. No, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. Um, I think, and I think in in biological and, and social systems, it's it, it is difficult to know what the what the effective variables that the system cares about. Yes, are. exactly. And I think that, for example, to describe humans in in my work, like what is what it, the thing that will provide simplicity, for example, is you know cognitive limitations or information processing limitations, and I think. Maybe that's also something that that's relevant to biological systems. Yeah. Um, but we <laughs> we can get into that. But okay, so you find yourself so already in high school, you were kind of thinking, "This is me." You were not. What you didn't have any other dreams of doing anything no, else? No, no, I didn't. And so, so I ended up at uh, when I was deciding where I wanted to go for my undergraduate. I was already thinking I wanted to be someplace with you know a. a a 
history of a strong physics program, right? Yes. Um, and so, so my choices were all really very much driven by that. Um, and I ended up doing my undergraduate um, degree at the State University of New York at Stony Brook. Yes. Um, and so I, you know, I, I had this little undergraduate thesis project um, that I did under the direction of Jerry Brown. Um, and it had to do with, um, with modeling the evolution of binary pulsar systems, um, which, um, you know, it was, it, what was, what was compelling about it for me in the end, what, what stuck with me from it, um, was less of a love of astrophysics, although there was that, but, but also just, at that point, what I was starting to see and experience as a very young researcher was the power of computation to also inform our understanding yes. of the world around us. Um, and so after I graduated from Stony Brook, um, I ended up going to the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and joining Klaus Schulten's theoretical and computational biophysics group. Yes, And what drew me into that was a couple things. Partly it was this, this desire to continue to use the tools of mathematics and computation in particular to, to understand the world, um, regardless of what, what the application domain was, right? <laughs> so, yeah, sure. so, so what entertained me actually was the methods rather than the, um, the system itself. Um, and the other thing that drew me to that group was uh, I had taken a class in non-equilibrium statistical mechanics from Klaus. And it was... It was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. <laughs> um, and so, so at that point, I, I thought, oh, this is, this is where I want to be. And so that was what drew me actually into the study of biological systems um, more deeply than I had ever been before. I don't think I took a single biology class as an undergraduate. And so there was a lot, <laughs> a lot of learning that I had to do. Yes, I remember kind of running into biology also at some point and exactly just sitting down and being like, what the, like all the names of the, there's so many names of things that you have to remember. Yes. And it's a very different challenge than the, um, than, than what you face in physics. Oh yeah. (laughs) That's for sure. But okay. So, so, uh, you, you write, you do an undergrad that's very physics, physics physics-y. Mm-hmm. And then you do your graduate work in biophysics? It was still in physics. Yes. Um, so, what, so what I was interested there was the, the self-organization and self-assembly of these membrane protein structures. So membrane proteins are comprised of several different subunits that somehow find a way to insert themselves into the hydrophobic membrane um, and find each other and assemble into these beautiful pores and channels and complexes. And they're, they're really, they're so intricate and beautiful. And the question that we had was, was how, right? Um, And Klaus was famous for developing NAMD, which is an extremely efficient uh, molecular dynamics software. Right. And so we were able to simulate basically the just integrate the equations of motion for um, for these systems in atomic level detail. And of course, the simulations, especially at the time, they it takes a long time to even get a you know a, a yeah. nanosecond of simulation out. And these assembly processes are 
slower than than that, right? So um, so we had to find ways to nudge the system in the correct direction, which meant doing a little bit of work on the system. And so my first project was to find a way to essentially discount the irreversible work that we were doing on the system in order to reconstruct um, potential of mean force profiles. And then the some other projects, and then the very last one had to do with spontaneous self-assembly of a micelle surrounding these transmembrane helices of glycophorin A, which is just a very well-studied kind of a toy system, right? Nobody really cares from a medical perspective about glycophorin A, but it's such a well-studied, well-characterized system that you could really you know, probe whether or not your, your computational simulations were were sensible. Um, and so we were able to observe in those simulations in atomic level and femtosecond resolution, this self-assembly process. Um, and it was, it was fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it was yeah, really yeah. lovely. So yeah. you got to see basically, um, some of the, on, there was a glimpse of the unreasonable effectiveness in a way, mm. right? Mm-hmm. Because, we, you you're looking at highly complex simulations uh, with a lot of moving parts and a lot of yeah. rules, yeah. and then you know something about the system that'll <laughs> that'll speed things up, and then yeah, I mean I I just find it interesting that you know like in the classic physics world, all of the theories are truly uh, you know simple and easy. And now we kind of we have to look for it in glimpses, right? We see this yeah. the effectiveness, and it's beautiful when you see some kind of pattern formation or something along those lines that that, that really is on like not trivially given by the model in a way. Mm-hmm. But when it happens, it's uh, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah. So so this is your doctoral work. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I I had a look at your cv so you finished your phd and then you did a one year something letter combination i don't even know what it is yes okay yeah this bears some explanation so i did a master's it was a master's in public health and i did it after my phd and the reason that it happened at all was that when i finished up my phd i thought i would keep doing these sorts of molecular dynamics simulations i but I wanted to work on systems that maybe had a little bit more biomedical relevance. I was feeling a little bit like what I was doing was, was something that would never help anybody. Um, And, and so I applied for this really interesting postdoc fellowship run by the national cancer Institute in the NIH in uh, Bethesda, Maryland, And the idea behind the Cancer Prevention Fellowship is they try to recruit people who have not worked in cancer-related research whatsoever from domains not typically associated with Mm -hmm. cancer research and sort of retrain you to be able to do cancer-related research. And so they accepted me. And the very first thing that they do when you enter this program is they ship you off to a school of public health to give oh, wow. you some sort of clue about how biomedical research is done. 
Um, and, and so the very first year I was at Johns Hopkins doing this master's in public health, they were paying for it and paying me as a postdoc at the same time. Um, and then because you have this extra degree, you then get paid more when you return to the NIH and start doing your postdoctoral research. So it's a really nice system for many reasons. Um, but for me, it was, it was life-changing in the following way because, you know, you do a master's thesis. Mm -hmm. And so here I found myself in the school of public health uh my training was that of a physicist i had absolutely no clue what i was doing um and so you know you you start to knock on professor's doors to find an advisor right and the only department where i had any hope of finding an advisor was the biostatistics department so i'm knocking on doors in biostatistics and you know one of the one of the failures uh of the unreasonable effectiveness of mathematics um, it is in the sense that because it's so unreasonably effective in physics, physicists tend not to learn a lot of statistics. Yes. Um, I at least certainly didn't. And so, so it was already like already kind of a stretch to think that I would be able to do a biostatistics research project, but you know, I had some math, not completely useless. And so Giovanni Parmigiani, who was at Hopkins at the time and is mm-hmm. now at Harvard, um, decided that he would take a chance on me. And he said, well, have you heard, I'm going to date myself now, have you heard <laughs> about microarrays? And I said, like, you know, in the news or something, like, I don't really know. And he's like, well, look, now we have this way of measuring, you know, 10 to the fourth different markers in every sample, the expression level of 10 to the fourth different genes. And, um, and the way that people analyze this data is they look at it one gene at a time and they try to say something about the system. And to me, he said, this seems like maybe a, a somewhat impoverished approach because we know that the genes act together, right? right? And so to analyze them independently is, is a little bit insensible. Um, so would you like to work on this problem? Um, and I mean, you know, I was, it was an intriguing problem and I was very arrogant. So I thought, yes, absolutely. Look, it just looks like stab Mac, right? How different could it be really? <laughs> right. Um, we need, you know, to say something about the bulk based on these microscopic measurements. Okay. Or interactions. And so anyway, it was what drew me into genomics. Um, and so when I returned to the National Cancer Institute to do my postdoctoral research, instead of continuing in this very biophysics vein, um, I ended up joining first a laboratory of human genetics and then the laboratory of population genetics um, in order to essentially retool myself and went in a much more computational statistics, genomics direction. Um, and yeah, when I say it was, it was life-changing, it really entirely changed the trajectory of my career. And it was completely accidental. It was just because I'd applied to this program and happened to knock on Giovanni's door that day, right? So. Yeah, no, no, but this is amazing. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of things I, I want to dig into here. So the first one is, how come that you decided to, to make a change? Or how come that you decided to try some, you know, like what I mean? Because you were kind of saying your whole life, you're driven by the beauty of physics, you're driven by that, that you're good at all the math stuff and you, you end up actually getting this beautiful 
result on self-organization that comes out of it. And then when you're done, you're thinking, well, wait a minute, I want to get into something that has a, some kind of human thing. So what happened there? I, I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. It was just, I think I was ready for something different. And I think I was, I was feeling a little bit, you know, I, I, I've always, you know, sort of had this, uh, yeah, I, you're going to have to leave this stammering on the cutting room floor. Um, I don't know what changed. That's the short answer. <laughs> no, but it's a, it was a good answer. I think, I think sometimes it just changes. It's not, yeah. I mean, but it could have been that something precipitated that, that it changed, right? But yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I, maybe it's, I, maybe it's, it's possible that there was something that, that is somewhere unexamined in my mind, but, but I think it was just, I, you know, I, Really, I just, what I had thought when I went to the NIH was that I would just, that I, I wouldn't leave the physics behind, right? Yeah. I would just adjust the the application domain of it. And, and so, so I guess the, in some sense, it wasn't, it wasn't a sudden change, right? Yes. It was it was very gradual and and sort of buffeted by the fact that I was given this problem, which had nothing to do with with physics, but which but which had qualities that that attracted me for the same way. In that we have these emergent phenomena of you know we were looking at cancer data, so so these emergent phenomena of of malignancies, and we have these microscopic measurements, and somehow somehow that end state arises via the interplay of all of those microscopic pieces. And so how can we model that interplay um, to say something about that final, very macroscopic, coarse-grained state that we observe as cancer, right? And, And the thing is that cancers are, when you look at them at the macroscopic level, they're fairly homogenous, right? Like the the cancer cells look a certain way in the microscope. People who look at those slides can immediately identify them. But when you look at even histologically identical cells at the microscopic scale, when you look at their gene expression, they're vastly different from one another, right? So, So kind of in this almost... Tolstoyan sense there is there is more than one way for the system to be unhappy yes. right and so so I think to me that's a very interesting question of of what are the ways in which the system can get to that final state what constrains it yep. from from not reaching other states or from other sorts of uh, um, alterations at the molecular level leading elsewhere right so so i think that the 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 style of questions was mm-hmm. it was the same style yeah right? no no but it i see a deep connection to the physics of physics of complex systems because it's all about how do you get from kind of many different states or many different underlying behaviors to robust system level states yeah absolutely. and that, that's a very deep connection that you see in many problems studied in physics and mm-hmm. and i had not thought about it but it's true that cancer kind of shares that that there is an underlying chaos and wildness and yet what the the end product 
you know, is there's only a few different end states essentially, and that is that is super interesting. Right. I, and 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 I would say that good health gives an even more profound example, right? In that there's enormous variability in yeah. healthy living systems, <laughs> right? Um, and yeah. and and despite all of that variability at the microscopic scale, you still see these very consistent outcomes in development um, and, and in, in the circadian rhythms, which we'll talk about later. And all sorts of processes are very well regulated despite all of that noise at the microscopic level. And so how do you then abstract away the, and this gets back to that effective variables question that you raised yeah. earlier right what is it that the system actually cares about yeah 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 and it blows every time every time i start thinking about this it blows my mind just morphogenesis of you know living creatures starting out yeah. is so nuts how do you how do you reliably uh get a finger right yeah how do how do the cells in between the fingers decide oh yeah i'm going to uh i'm gonna commit suicide now and and the other one's thinking well i i should become bone or you know like it's on it's it's just unbelievably how you end these uh or or end up at these states reliably absolutely so so we we should move forward but there's so much interesting stuff here so i want to ask one more question which is this thing about the statistics and physicists and statistics because i think you and i kind of share have share having moved from physics to areas where the the statistics are all of a sudden much more important than a sense of distributions and all these things all these things become important so i i wonder can you talk a little bit about that experience of of kind of shifting gears um, I mean, it's like any gear shifting, right? You spend a lot of time learning and a fair amount of time mm-hmm. making mistakes and being corrected by people with real expertise. Yeah. Um, and and at some point, I I was able to um, to imitate a, a real statistician well enough to get um, to get a position as a faculty member in a biostatistics department. Very nice. um, and uh, and then the thing that really solidified my knowledge, honestly, was teaching it, right? Um, there's, it's one thing to kind of know it well enough to use it, and it's another to know things deeply enough to teach and to guide students in problem solving and to, to do research that is based on it. Um, and so, you know, it was a gradual learning process, I would say, but, and, and it's partly... You said that you looked at my CV, so you might have noticed how much time I spent yeah. in my postdoc, and partly it was learning all the things that I hadn't learned before and which I needed in order to be yes. effective. Yeah, right. so you came with this kind of deep physics background, and then you just kept expanding your skill set, because I really see, I see the physics background even in the paper that we're going to talk about you know, it's called too lazy to read the paper, but I do, I do look at them and um, just a little bit. And, and I can see even in the machine learning stuff, I can see this way of, you know, the physicist taking time to explain what the different variables mean and what they do to the model and, and how this variable controls this and this. And it's a very, very physics-y way of thinking that I've still recognized in your work now. <laughs> Th- thank you. That's um. That's, <laughs> that's 
that's possibly the greatest compliment I have received <laughs> on, on that paper. So I appreciate that. I'm, I'm glad that it comes through. Um, it's it's hard to get away from one's roots. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I, think, and I don't want to. Yeah, so. No, no, no. But I think it leads to kind of a, a different type of inquiry almost that, that it is like, what is it that it gives you to be a physicist working in another field? And I think you ask questions differently right and you you appreciate different types of answers sometimes to your detriment in the sense that you know uh, people in the field will hate you for it because you mm. you are oversimplifying or whatever but 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 um and and you have a maybe a, a, you ask different questions because you believe that you will find systems more right that right. allows you to like you're, you haven't you haven't given up as the <laughs> social scientist or the biologist you still think well maybe there might there could be a law in there somewhere yeah, or a system yeah. or rules or whatever yeah. but all right but let's let's take it so so you find yourself you're 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 uh, you're doing a master's just to do a super cool postdoc and yeah. you work on genetics and cancer for yeah. a while yeah that's right and then how do you get to where you are now, where you spend a lot of time trying to understand uh, sleep? I also see networks in there. You were at the NetSci conference yeah. in 2013. So yep. take us kind of the last bit of the way to now. Oh, goodness. Okay. Um, I mean, as you see, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I would say that much of my career has been has been the result of very happy accidents, right? The w one of which I already talked about, and that was happening in onto you know this project that Giovanni was working on, um, and and many of of the things that have grabbed my attention have been sort of the result of these very spontaneous and serendipitous interactions. Um, so, how did it? In more detail, how did all of this happen? Um, so I was at the NIH, um, and you know, there's there's a there's a lot of good reason to stay at the NIH if one can, in that one doesn't have to chase for grant money in the same way that one does at you you know at least U.S. universities. Um, you know, it's it's comfortable in that regard. Mm -hmm. um, but I was starting to feel a little bit. Um, like, I wasn't at a university. I wanted to be at a university. I wanted to be exposed to ideas that weren't just biomedical research. I wanted students around because students aren't cynical when it comes to research. I can't tell you how many times I would have some incredibly stupid idea. And it would just, I mean, stupid ideas should be shot down, right? But, but like, there's also a willingness to be open to, to stupid ideas and to evolve them into something less stupid. And there was so much, I don't know, there was enough cynicism amongst the people who I interacted with at the National Cancer Institute that we weren't able to, to be creative because things would just be shot down and not pursued. It was, it was frustrating. Um, and so... So I thought, okay, I need to get out. I need to be at a university where where people have different perspectives and they're willing to toss around ideas until they go from something that's half-baked into something that's really, truly, fully baked and rigorous and, and meaningful, but to engage in that process and not just kind of keep doing the tried and true things that they have been doing. 
Um, and so, so that was why I ended up at Northwestern. Um, and, and, you know, I, I had been interested in these sorts of network approaches to understanding gene regulatory dynamics. I was working on gene regulation at the NIH, um, and, uh, and we were sort of taking these, nonlinear dimension reduction approaches, but we know something about the ways in which these genes interact with one another, right? The people have done experiments in which some of those interactions at least are well known. And those are represented in pathway databases, right? So you can go to a pathway database and you can pull out a network that represents in some sense, it's a map of possible interactions that might be taking place in a cell, right? Yeah. It, they're not necessarily all taking place in the system that you're interested in, but they are at least possible. And and there are probably errors in it. In fact, we know there are errors in it. But it gives us a starting point to start to model things at a systems level rather than at the single gene level or treating pathways as just collections of genes without any structure beyond yeah. the correlation structure. Um, and so that was what I was doing at the NIH and then st- did more and more independently and, and started doing at Northwestern. Um, and yeah. But, but can I ask you a kind of a meta question, which is why do you think that institutions like the NIH it, or at least where you were, uh, it's, it's difficult to generalize. Why do you think that they are kind of less good at taking chances? Like, what was it about? Was it the incentive structure? Is it uh, is it because it, there's such an intense focus on, you know, like making concrete, measurable progress that it's just like a bigger barrier to making jumps and doing crazy stuff because you're like, what if you're wasting time with a little model and what, right. what what's happening there? You think, you know, I, I've thought about it a lot and, and it's, I'm not sure. I do think that much of it has to do with, um, with, with this very real sense that you are there to make progress on preventing and curing specific diseases. And so, doing something that's a little bit more blue sky and high risk and creative, but maybe doesn't have an end goal in mind. I I wouldn't say that it's frowned upon, but I think that there is that sort of a little bit of self-censorship in the sense that you know that what you are supposed to be doing is, is curing disease. Right. And so, so if you're not doing that, then then maybe what you're doing is wasting time and taxpayer resources. And I think also a lot of it has to do with there not being students around. There not being graduate students who, you know, will, will sometimes enable or, you know, I, I don't even know how to put it exactly. For me, at least, having this this very i don't need, yeah this part again i'm just stammering and you're going to have to leave it on no, cutting yeah, I'm the like floor. i'm leaving everything in because uh, <laughs> <laughs> because it's real and i think it's interesting also yeah. you know like the, yeah I, it's it's not clear that you have to have a perfect answer for everything yeah. but i i think it's fascinating because i think you know if you think in terms of physics 
Uh, you know all about energy landscapes and the dangers of getting stuck in a local minimum. And sometimes you can worry, especially in the kind of landscape of health research with being a total amateur. Yeah. But nevertheless, you kind of think, well, what if, what if the reason we're not making progress on cancer is because we just have thought of it all wrong all along, all along. Yeah. or something like that? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And and um, and I think that's that is really why we need all kinds of exploration and funding to do really crazy stuff because otherwise, like, we'll never find out. Right. Absolutely. Mode. And I think I think at an institutional level the National Cancer Institute understands that, right? In the sense that, you know, they funded this Cancer Prevention Fellowship precisely to get people thinking outside the box because their training was coming from outside of the box, yeah. right? Um, and so so I think that they want to promote that sort of innovation. And, and I don't, you know, I don't want to malign the entire National no, Cancer no, no, Institute no, 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 no. or the NIH, right? It was just this very <laughs> you know. localized feeling that yes. I had that there was this sort of reluctance to, to take risks. Yes. No, no, but, uh, but I, I mean, I, I, I don't mean to say anything general about any institution, but only to think about what is it that drives research and in which, you know, in which directions mm -hmm. and incentives really matter, I think, Bob. Uh, so 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 it's interesting to kind of hear about experiences even though that they're <laughs> they're local to yeah. to whatever uh, you saw but okay but a, another thing i want to ask is that you you exactly said that you spent a long time being a postdoc mm -hmm. and i think yeah. that this part of this aspect of a career is also interesting and an interesting to many young scientists because they're kind of still maybe a PhD student or a postdoc or right. whatever. And they're thinking, how am I, and this is also what I started out with, how am I going to, how am I going to transition? How will I become a faculty at a university? And is that even what I want to do? And, and there's a lot. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I remember that time in my life very vividly, right? Also, am I good enough? all these things. Yeah. So what was going on with you in that regard for the, and, and by the way, also if you have friends that are not in science, right? Like you're, you're looking at the, at your uh, calendar and being like, wait a minute, is this person now like they have, they have a huge house and they're the, <laughs> the director of <laughs> direct, they're in charge of what? 500 uh, people. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and I'm still in a dorm room, um, <laughs> And and maybe I'll get a paper, a great paper out at some. So so what 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 are you thinking? Like what also keeps you going and 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 all these things? Oh, um, okay. So so I hate being told what to do, nice. and the only way that I could figure out how to make a living and not have somebody tell me what I should be thinking about is if I found some way to stay in academia. Yes, and so that was that was a. A big thing for me, but the 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 thing is that I think I there are a lot of drawbacks to to academia, and for some people, those drawbacks went out, and that's that's fine. Um, I think you know I have a number of friends who who left academia for various reasons, and friends who also stayed, right? Um, and I think it's just it's a balancing act of what you want and and. Um, and for me, it was just, I just wanted independence and, and I didn't, you know, if I lived in a dorm room for the rest of my life, I was, I was kind yes. of okay with that. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, no, so. no, but that's a good answer. And and you didn't have to ask me to edit it out because you knew exactly <laughs> what the answer was. was oh, like, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that's interesting and, and, uh, and super cool. But okay, so now, so now you're at a university. Mm -hmm. You're thinking about networks and protein interactions. Yeah. But the paper that we'll be talking about very soon is about sleep. Yeah. So how did that happen? <laughs> by accident. It all happens yeah. by accident. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so you know, I was hanging out in NICA, which is the Northwestern Institute for Complex Systems, which you know. Yes. Um, and... Uh, And Dirk Brockman was was there at the time, so I had many conversations with Dirk. Um, and Bill Kath was there and, and is still at Northwestern. And so, um, you know, we were just chatting about something. And, um, and Bill said to me, you know, I've been working with this neuroscientist by the name of Ravi Alada, um, and he has this gene expression related problem that, you know, I don't really, it's, it's not really in my wheelhouse, but you've been doing machine learning with respect to, to gene expression data. Are you interested in, in getting involved? And, and the simple fact of the matter is that I have a giant unmanaged case of attention deficit disorder. <laughs> right? And so anytime anybody says to me, here's the problem, are you interested? I say yes, yeah, I know. right? Which gets me into a lot of trouble. Um, but it also is, it's so much fun. It's so yes. much fun. Um, and so, so I said yes. And, and then we started talking with Ravi Alada. And, um, and the question was... How do you determine what time somebody's body thinks it is, which may or may not be aligned to the clock on the wall? Yes. Right? But it has profound implications for health outcomes, and so it's important to know. And so, so can, you, can you find a way to, to learn to tell the time from gene expression biomarkers. Yes, and now I just want to say, I should say the title, right? So, so now that we'll be, so you've written many papers on sleep, but the one that is kind of our official paper for this episode is called Universal Method for Robust Detection of Circadian State from Gene Expression. And it's a paper that was in PNAS in 2018. People can look it up if they like. And this is the kind of now the paper that we're getting into and we'll go in a little bit more. I mean, we've gone in insane detail, I guess, <laughs> but we'll go in detail and explain it a little bit more. And yeah. it's, and it's super, uh, and it's super interesting. And, and I should also, I, I, I don't know. I think there's show notes, but you sent me, we should to set this up. You've had an explainer for the paper and it was a clip from Star Trek. <laughs> so you need to explain this. So, so uh, maybe I'll splice the clip in or something. Oh, that would be terrific. Yeah, yeah. you should. <laughs> so so let, and let me actually do it because I am going to mix this okay. anyway. Um, so I'm going to play the clip now. <laughs> Physiologically, each of us is on a daily cycle. Our cells have developed rhythms based on a 24-hour period. Internal clock. Exactly. And I can measure that effect at the molecular level. I took a trace from the last person to use the transporter before the incident and compared her cell function levels at that time to what they are right now. If we were unconscious for only 30 seconds, those cycles should be nearly synchronous. And were they? 
No. We were out for longer than 30 seconds, Captain. A lot longer. That's an edit point. It's called in the business, I believe. <laughs> <laughs> and and so now you should explain, um, you know, maybe just comment on the clip. Like, how did you come across it? Because it, it does give a perfect explanation. Oh, of your yeah. Paper. Yeah. Um, no. So that clip. Oh, and um, I should say, God damn it. Yeah. I'm terrible. First of all, I shouldn't be cursing. Maybe now I won't be on. <laughs> maybe now I won't be on on the Apple Podcast. I have to put like an explicit <laughs> language thing, which I didn't think. But it's, it's Picard and the ship's doctor. Right. Um, I can't remember. Beverly Crusher was the character. Crusher, so awesome, yeah. Doctor Crusher. Uh, and they, they're having a conversation, and they basically explain your paper. So. <laughs> Did you had you seen this before and remembered it, or did someone bring? No, no. Um, so, so years after we published Time Signature, my partner was uh, was going back and just rewatching old Star Treks for fun, yes. <laughs> and he hits this episode, and like I can't even remember what time of the night it was. I was fast asleep, right? Yes. But he is so excited, and he's like, "You have to see this." So, um, so, so, yeah, so. So we discovered it after the fact. Nice. Um, and, you know, when I was looking up when it had premiered, um, obviously we were scooped by many, many years by Star Trek. Um, so, so it, it was, um, it, that clip comes from 1991, I want to say. And it, it happens to have premiered on my birthday that year um so i feel a, a real affinity for that particular <laughs> episode <now>. nice yeah <laughs> that's so so okay but so we know so, so so maybe just to set it up or i'm gonna say what i know about the body so i know that the body uh has its own internal clock and if you put someone in a cave underground they're going to wake up and sleep at some pattern and it's not quite 24 hours some people it's shorter some people it's longer mm-hmm. they do all kinds of weird stuff but there is some kind of temporal regulation uh, of a circadian pattern in a human being it's it's modulated i think in the brain is something called the superchiasmatic nucleus yeah. uh and it's a it's 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 not charismatic but key chiasmatic because yeah. it's over uh, a chi it, it looks it's the greek letter chi in there and and I, I i listen to a lot of podcasts so i also know that other parts of the body have their own circadian clock yeah. it seems that the organs have their own timekeeper and so on and so the specific challenge you're solving here is is related to this somehow but it maybe set that up a little bit yeah so um so i think everybody is 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 very viscerally aware of their own circadian rhythm um and um, and so, yeah, it's it's driven by the master clock in the SCN. I won't, <laughs> since you already said the Latin name, I don't need to repeat it. Um, but but you are correct when you say that all organs have their own timekeeper. In fact, all cells, nearly all cells, um, have their own circadian rhythm. You can put cells in culture, and you can observe processes with an approximate twenty four hour period. Wow. And this mechanism is not just in humans, not just in mammals. It's evolutionarily conserved. You can find it in bacteria. You can find it in bread mold. You can find it in fruit flies. Um, you can fly, find it in mice. Um, so it's a 
fundamental biological mechanism, right? Anytime you see something that's conserved over so many, uh, you know, over over so many evolutionary steps and and across so many branches of life, you know that there's something important to it that yeah. justifies the energetic cost of keeping it. Yeah. Right. Um, and and at the same time, we also have a ton of epidemiological evidence that shows that failures of the circadian rhythm have health impacts. Um, we see circadian disruption being associated with heart disease, um, with metabolic syndrome, with neurodegeneration. Um, there are drugs that are better metabolized at certain times of day than others. So, for example, yeah. blood pressure medicine, people are typically told to take it in the evening. Chemotherapy is also better tolerated at certain times than others. So it plays this enormous role in our everyday lives and in our health outcomes. And the links between that molecular clock that exists in all cells and all organisms, nearly all, um, and these larger outcomes is really not well understood at all. Right. And part of the reason that we don't understand the mechanistic links between the circadian rhythm and those health outcomes that, that people care about um, is because it's just really hard to measure in a human being. It's just very, very difficult to take a person and say, what time does their particular personal body think it is? Yeah. And so that was the problem we wanted to solve. We wanted to make it easier to assay biological time so right. that we could say, oh, you're well aligned. You're, you have a lower risk for heart disease. You're not well aligned. Yes. Maybe we should treat it and maybe we should monitor these same biomarkers to see if you become better aligned. Maybe we can tell you when you should take your drugs on a very personalized basis rather than just saying, ah, you know, take them sometime in the evening. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are things we would like to do and we didn't have a way to get at it because the way that circadian phase is typically measured, the gold standard, is to look at melatonin rhythms. Mm -hmm. Melatonin is a hormone that's secreted by the SCN um, and is thought of as the signal that synchronizes all of the peripheral clocks. Yep. And melatonin starts to increase a few hours before you feel sleepy at night. And so the way that we usually determine physiological time as we do serial sampling of melatonin we look to see where it starts to rise when it passes a quarter of wherever it hits its max so you have to wait for it to hit its max which is sometime in the middle of the night mm -hmm. that it's called dim light melatonin onset that point is considered that individual's clock striking midnight right, right. that's the marker of circadian phase and so that means that you have to take samples of melatonin every hour or every half hour <laughs> for an entire day, right? Clear into yeah. the night, um, which is not exactly pleasant for the individual, no, <laughs> right? No, no. And it's not exactly cheap either because then you have all of these samples that you then need to assay. Yeah. Right? In 2017, I believe it was, the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine was awarded to Michael Rosbash, um, Michael Young, and Jeff Hall for the discovery of the molecular mechanism that drives the circadian rhythm um, in all cells. And that mechanism is a transcription, translation, feedback loop. 
It's just a molecular oscillator. Mm-hmm. It turns out that that molecular oscillator is coupled to the expression levels of hundreds, possibly thousands of genes in an organ-specific fashion, right? So this is what gives rise to those organ-specific clocks that you mentioned yeah. earlier. Right? <clears throat> um, it's just this periodic expression of certain genes at certain times of day. And so if the genes ha- exhibit oscillatory dynamics, then maybe all you need to do is take a single blood sample, look at the expression levels of the genes, and use that as a readout of the physiological clock. And so that was the dream. Yeah. Um, and that was what we tried to do in this paper. So, and, so, but what is the raw data that you're then looking at in the paper? Yeah. So we are looking at transcriptomic measurements. So those are abundances of mRNA molecules mm-hmm. um, on a per gene basis, so genome-wide. Yep. And so we have on the order of 10,000 to 20,000 different markers, different numbers per sample. And from those, we are trying to infer what time of day those genes were being expressed. And so basically what what you want to do is you want to do kind of a many to one mapping where you you (laughs) you have all these little uh little bars on your histogram and and the concentration can go between something and something else and then you you want to say is there a kind of unique mapping of each of these high dimensional states to a clock time yeah and is and is that this and if we're lucky you know then i could do that for you but and if we're lucky then we can do it robustly so that the measurement that we did for you works for me. Yeah. And if we're super lucky, we can also take a mouse and measure the mouse's thing. That would be, that would be super duper lucky. So let's talk about, (laughs) no, 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 but I'm just thinking again, like in the physics way of thinking, like generalizing and generalizing and generalizing. Yeah. So, so where are we on, on that kind of, um, on that path? Yeah. So I think, I think the approach that we took could you know that that system independent that will generalize yeah. the exact calibration or yeah, yeah that is human specific and the right. genes that we report as being the markers of interest which is just a laundry list of genes that happen to be under circadian control those are very human specific as yes. well right so you wouldn't necessarily be able to take the the a machine that has been trained on human data and apply it to a mouse however what we were able to do is we were able to take data, uh, a machine that was trained on human data from one very specific study with a very specific set of, you know, population criteria in terms of who they were recruiting, a very specific set of sleep protocol before the the individuals gave their blood samples, um, a very specific set of uh, microarrays that were used in mm-hmm. that study or a microarray that was used in that study. And what we were able to do was do this sort of within subject normalization, which allowed the trained predictor then to be applied to data that came from a different lab with a different population, different sleep protocols, different assay technologies, right. all of these systematic differences and without knowing what those systematic differences were, 
we were able to extract a robust marker of physiological time that would generalize. And what this means is, is that from a practical perspective, now if someone is using this, this tool, right, if the technology changes or if a new patient walks in who differs from the yeah. population or if that patient has a baby at home and so they didn't get a good night's sleep the night before they show up in the doctor's office, the thing will still work. Right. Right. And that was really important to us going in was that we wanted to ensure that that the method, whatever it was, produced a predictor that was robust to all of those sources of variation that outside of the paper we can't control, right? Mm-hmm. In the real world. Yes. But so let's let's since this is uh, an unabashedly super nerdy podcast where we go from uh, Vigna to uh, discussing the inner workings of the <laughs> NIH, <laughs> let's dig into that just a little bit. So we can't yeah. get super nerdy, but so how how does one go about that? So you have a super particular data set. You, uh, of course, you can't just generalize from one person. But when you have a population, and now you can measure this across a population, and, and we're, we're doing this many-to-one mapping of going from the settings of, of some or, or the measurements on some assay to clock time, and you have that on a bunch of different people. Right. How do you then make it generalize, and how do you prove yeah. that it generalizes? Yeah. Just kind of the outline of the idea of that. Yeah. Um, so So what we did and the thing that made our methods successful. So we, I, I should say that we were not the only people to, to no. try to answer this question of, can we use gene expression as a readout of the physiological clock? Um, but the other methods took the approach of, well, we have all of these high dimensional measurements and machine learning works extremely well. So we'll just label some of those measurements with time of day, get the machine to learn it just using some generic approach uh and bob's your uncle right and and honestly machine learning is powerful right so so what they were able to achieve just using that very um straightforward one might say naive approach was actually it was it was decent it was not bad um but it didn't get to you know under two hours accuracy which is what we wanted um you know, the collaborators who I have on the clinical side were very yeah. insistent that that's, that's how accurate it needs to be. Um, and so we thought about it a little bit, and it, we realized that there was, there's a feature in that data that is exploitable, which is the genes that reflect the signal that we care about are periodic. They are oscillating around some baseline. And so... If we can just find that baseline, that baseline might be different from individual to individual or from study to study or from assay technology to assay technology. But if we just look at the gene expression fluctuations Mm -hmm. around that baseline, then maybe we would do a little bit better, right? And so that was actually the, the thing that differentiated time signature, which is what we called the method, from from the other ones that had been published up to that point. Yeah. So you basically normalized the signal. To that subject. Yes. Yeah. Um, and the nice thing about normalizing the signal to the individual that the data came from is that you then don't need to know 
anything else, right? Um, Because that, that baseline essentially contains all of the other sources of variation that we don't care about, right? That baseline contains whether or not they slept well. It contains, you know, but, the assay technology, their particular on. biology. But hang on. But then this, how do you get a baseline from a single blood sample? That is the drawback. So there's no free lunch, which means you need two samples. Ah. So, yeah. So we set out to do it using a single sample and... And now we have some ideas for how we might do within subject normalization with a single sample. Time signature used two. Yes. So the idea is that you would take two samples, ideally 12 hours apart, but we yes. were able to show that eight but, hours is good enough. So you yes. get a sample in the morning, you get a sample in the evening. It's it's better than melatonin anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. That makes sense. And uh, super cool. So So, and this paper somehow also got a ton of, publicity or you yeah like somehow caught the public imagination this yeah no i think it was i think it came out at at Mm. at the right time for for people to be thinking about it right it wasn't it wasn't long after the nobel prize for the circadian rhythm people yeah you know there was there was excitement about these ideas um you know there's been a lot of work from other labs Panda's lab, et cetera, looking at things like time-restricted feeding. And, yeah. and so a lot of interest in, in you know, measuring one's own circadian rhythms and, and, and you know, modifying them as, as much as one is able. And so I think it, it happened to come out at a time that, um, that you know, there was, there was already a little bit of attention. And so it captured the public's imagination a bit, um, which was, which was a lot of fun and also a little bit scary, right? Because, <laughs> because that's all, it's a big spotlight, but, um, but you know, it was, um, yeah, it was interesting. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, uh, and yeah, and I for sure stopped the uh, late night snacking after, uh, oh <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I can I can say that uh, this not exactly just your work but also the Sachin Panda work changed my life. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know I don't know if the outcomes are any different, but I I um I definitely eat less candy after uh, let's say eight p.m. than I used yeah. to. <laughs> so um so yeah so so it's uh, I'm I'm um, I'm impacted by it uh, yeah. by it too. Yeah, uh, super cool. What about so so this um, this is the the last thing I just want to get into is this is a, a paper in PNAS a super nice journal so what about uh, do you have any gossip about you know uh, the reviewer three was it hard <laughs> to get it in what was the no, what was the process no, it, it, was it, it just a shoe in what happened well it was neither it, it was it was it was actually one of those those rare occurrences where you get reviews that are useful right yes. so so they had real useful things to say and um and it's we the addressed best. them and and then it got published and and so yeah can't complain about that process at all um uh, there was a little bit of back and forth in letters following the paper. So, um, so 
Durkian Dyke's lab. We had actually used his data in the paper, um, but they had published one of the other methods for inferring circadian phase. And, and, uh, and they were pretty grumpy about our paper for various reasons. Um, and so they wrote a letter and then we responded to it. Um, I think, well, I would, I would (laughs) say I'm, I'm pleased with what we, what we came out with. So, um, so yeah, so there was that little bit of, of back and forth and you know what, I mean, um, it, it can be stressful when that sort of thing happens. Right. Um, but at the end of the day, I think that's, that's how science gets better is by having those sorts of open dialogues and debates and. Yeah. yeah. I think we need, so, so a couple of things from my side on this, which is I actually get quite a few really nice reviews that are useful and where it's clear that the reviewer is trying to, uh, help and also succeeds in it. Yeah, and 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 sometimes at a level of detail that is just makes me so happy and so thankful, and that I can't provide as a reviewer simply because of the amount yeah. of time I have available. But so I I want to flag up uh, t- to any reviewers out there that I actually get a lot of super nice reviews that make papers way better. Yeah, and sometimes I must even begrudgingly admit that some of the ones that make me furious upon receipt still make the paper better. Oh yeah. 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 No, I have, I have learned that the way when I receive reviews, whether it's about a paper or a grant, what I need to do is I need to read them and then get really angry and then set them aside for like a day, a day and a half. And then, then sometimes it takes a little longer depending on how infuriating (laughs) it is, but then I can, approach them again in a, in a way that's a little bit less defensive but yeah no yeah. i know that the first read through i'm just going to be angry and that's just the way it's going to be <laughs> yeah but it, but it, like sometimes it's only when the final paper is out i'm like shit even that guy who i really didn't like or whatever or or woman let's uh let's uh, <laughs> let's be inclusive here yeah women can also be evil reviewers i suppose oh absolutely uh, um you know, even the one I disliked the most and I thought was kind of, you know, like you can then be like, well, kind of, I guess they had a point, you know, yeah. like maybe we pushed the envelope a little too much at that point. So, so, so it is, it is a fantastic process. And I think that even this kind of public debate is also important and good. And we need more of that and less just mudslinging on uh, the Twitters, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like that that's because I think that that as long as you attack the science and not the person, right. and as long as you kind of stand by what you have to say yeah. and it happens at a pace where it's not detrimental for you if you don't respond within 3 minutes, but where you have time to think about it yeah. and give a measured response and so on, then in a way it should be okay to call bullshit on yeah. on stuff that you don't like and and, and I would like my stuff criticized right I mean in a gentle and sweet way <laughs> <laughs> and in a constructive way yeah, right in a constructive I, I, way but yeah. you know what I mean that that actually we are in this to create new knowledge yeah. and make humanity smarter and and that can only happen by someone if someone has a concern they raise it yeah but it should yeah, just yeah. not be mudslinging it should yeah. happen in a in a kind of uh civilized and dignified way yeah and then it's cool even yeah. if it's um if someone disagrees right yeah 
All right. Awesome. All right. We've been going on for a little over an hour. Time mm-hmm. flies by. At least it, it does. Did for me. Yeah. Um, th- anything I forgot? Um, well, I, I mean, there's something I actually wanted to talk about in relation to this paper. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, and you can you can cut it if, no, if it goes no, too no. long, or you can no, substitute no. it for the other things. There's that no I- <laughs> there's no limit. I just didn't want you to be too. Yeah. Tired no. Out. I, the the thing one of the things that made this paper so fun for me yes. is so it, it it came up just by serendipity. But I ended up working with Ravi Alada and Phyllis Z, who is a very famous sleep and circadian researcher. And those collaborations were mutual and creative and genuine. And, you know, I think now we have multiple papers together, multiple grants together, because it really worked there's a danger when one is doing work at the interface between um, between any disciplines that the the collaboration can become very transactional. Yeah. Right? Like I need you on a paper because a reviewer wants a biostatistician or mm-hmm. I have a new method and I just need yeah. a system to apply it to. I don't care which. Um, and I, I think it's very easy to get into those sorts of situations, especially when there's a pressure to get a grant or a pressure to get a paper mm-hmm. out. Um, and this this paper was the start of a collaboration that was really very authentic. Um, and we all brought something different in terms of yeah. expertise to it. But... You know, you asked me at one point earlier how I got into sleep and circadian research. And honestly, if if the relationships with my collaborators had not been yeah. as rich and as mutually respectful as they were, I wouldn't have stayed in it, right? No. But it it's just been so much fun to work with this incredible group of people. Yeah. Um, and so that was, you know, in some sense, again, this paper was like a turning point for me. Cool. Yeah. Amazing. So. And and I think that this is such an important thing to highlight is how great collaborations can be when they work. Yeah. When it's not just, you know, we, we're doing this and we need you to do the so-and-so analysis. And then you provide like a little input. But when it's a true kind of you're sitting together in a room talking for hours and hours and yeah. hours about how to get it just right yeah. and how to make things yeah. better. And, and I mean, if you, you said this thing that you wanted, you, you wanted to be in charge of the own stuff, but in a way for me, now that you bring it up, this, that is the core and the thing that brings me the most joy mm-hmm. and it, with science is that yeah it's yeah, those absolutely. conversations where y- you you know it's like some kind of beautiful uh, you know it's like a sports team that crushes something or it's like this <laughs> thing that you know you, you get an idea and someone else makes it even better yeah and then someone else goes like well no but if we did it this and then like the little stupid thing that was first said is gradually transformed into something that's way better and you could yeah. not have done it alone yeah and those absolutely. those things are just uh, fantastic it's, yeah it's so beautiful and compelling when it works just absolutely like it's yeah so so awesome and and uh, good <laughs> good thing bringing up and yeah. and thanks for 
taking the time to be on the podcast. Thank you for having me. Yeah, this has been a ton of fun. Cool. Great. All right. I'm going to hit the big red button on my new uh, recording uh, rig and and, uh, we'll (laughs) we'll, uh, wrap it up for now. Thank you so much. Thanks. The podcast was recorded, produced and edited by me. That's uh, Suna, in case you're wondering. It's been partially funded by the Willem Foundation and by the Technical University of Denmark. The awesome music is by Waylon Thornton and can be found at the Free Music Archive, or at least that's where I found it. And there's also a little bit of music by me. Now, thank you and have a nice day.